G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman, and I have to give thanks to Andrew Tight, director at J. Sutton Associates, for bringing this case to my attention. Andrew Tight gave a summary of one of these cases that we're covering in this episode in a LinkedIn post, and I found it so interesting that I tracked down several of the judgments and gave them a read. So for this episode, I'll be apologetically writing Andrew's coattails. Today, we are covering a criminal trial, but actually we are covering multiple judgments made in relation to the jury that was sitting on this criminal trial. I'll give you a brief explanation of the criminal case being heard, but our focus here will be on the jury and complex difficulties that can arise in a long hearing. Side note, I'm going to need to say the word jury a lot in this case. I'm going to avoid saying juror any more than one time because it is a nightmare with my speech impediment. For all my childhood and most of my teenage years, I couldn't pronounce the letter R or TH. I would pronounce them as W or F. So speech therapy has done wonders, but there are still some words that I've just got to concede defeat. And jury and juror really caused me difficulties. Very ironic for a lawyer. So I apologize in advance and I will avoid those words. The criminal case. Adam Cranston, his sister Lauren Cranston, Dev Menon, Patrick Wilmot and Jason Onley were charged with two counts. The first being that between March 2014 and May 2017, they conspired with several other people with the intention of dishonestly causing a loss to the Commonwealth of Australia. The second charge being that they conspired with several other people to deal with money of a value of $1 million or more, believing it to be proceeds of crime. Both are offences under the Criminal Code. All five pleaded not guilty. This case is still ongoing, so the judgment is not available to read as yet. However, there have been 20 associated judgments in relation to the running of the matter, which I've reviewed very briefly. All pretty much procedural, what evidence is admissible, what is subject to legal professional privilege. There was recordings from listening devices installed in several rooms at an offices of claimants' lawyers, with the accused raising arguments of unlawful or excessive execution of warrants. There was also that Adam Cranston was self-represented and had been denied legal aid. His co-accused were represented by solicitors and barristers, and they wanted their matter to be heard separately from Adam's, because being self-represented, he might unintentionally harm their case. He might make admissions from the bar table that is adverse to their own cases. He might cross-examine witnesses relying on his personal knowledge and not on what evidence is in the brief or before the court, and in doing so may reveal more than he intends. He might make opening and closing statements which prejudice his co-accused. So those are some of the procedural issues that needed to be determined as the court heard this criminal matter. 
Once the judgment comes out, I might cover it in a separate podcast episode, but to give you a teaser, the alleged fraud was asserted to have brought in $140 million. One of the co-accused stated that the alleged conspirators, a Mr. Roskonkovsky, Mr. Barrett and Mr. Houseman threatened to expose them, threatened violence and were allegedly paid off with $25 million. And there was recorded conversations, such as the following. Apologies for the swearing, but I feel like this extract loses some of its flavour without it. Mate, I'll put my hand up, I'll go to jail, I'll have a good time, I'll fucking train every day. Get in good shape, yeah, get in good shape, fucking be away from the wife, yeah, it'd be great. I'll fucking go to jail for everyone, I'll say it's all me. It doesn't look that good, bro, doesn't it? It looks shit. Dude, I've been in jail before. It's shit. I've been in jail in the US. Jason Onley objected to the inclusion of the part where he said he had been in jail before. However, it was later used in evidence. Onley applied for the jewellery to be dismissed, but instead the judge just told them to disregard that part. This was a month after the trial had begun, and if the jury had been dismissed, the whole thing would have to start again. Which is a nice little lead-in to the focus of this episode, which is the jury. The jury of 15 people that was impaneled on 26th of April 2022 to serve in these criminal proceedings. Case 1. The Commonwealth versus Cranston, number 16, 2022. This is the judgment that Andrew Tate summarised so well in his LinkedIn post and which caught my interest and it relates to payment of jury members. The criminal trial began in August 2022. At that time, employed New South Wales jury members were paid $106.30 a day. After 10 days, that rate was increased to $247.40 a day. Under the Fair Work Act, if an employee is on jury duty, the employer must pay the employee their base rate for the first 10 days of jury duty. This means that for employed jury members, for the first 10 days, they get their normal pay, which would be the $106.30 jury pay and the balance made up by their employer. And from day 11 onwards, they get $247.40 a day regardless of how much they were earning in their everyday job. Where an employee had jury duty, the Jury Act prohibits their employer from firing them, changing their position or punishing them. And this makes sense. It is not hard to imagine that employers might be annoyed at having to continue to pay an employee who isn't working, who is instead sitting on a jury. They might want to fire that employee just to get out of paying them, or they might take other actions to punish that employee just for doing their civic duty. The Jury Act steps in to protect employees, call to jury service, and prohibits retaliation from the employer. In this case, we had a good and generous employer. In the judgment, the relevant juror is referred to as juror 01052964, but let's not call him that, let's call him Bob. 
Bob was one of the jury members in this trial. His employer paid the makeup salary as required for the first 10 days of the trial. Then they continued to pay the makeup payment to Bob as he continued to serve on the jury. They didn't have to, but they did. But by month five, the employer reached their limit. They had been paying Bob for four months while he was sitting on the jury and just couldn't manage it anymore. They had far exceeded their obligation under the Fair Work Act. The 15-member jury was impaneled on the 26th of April 2022. This judgment relating to Bob was made on the 30th of August, being day 71 of the trial. That morning, Justice Payne received a letter from jury member that I am calling Bob, and the letter read, quote, Your Honour, I was recently advised by my employer that they had decided to stop providing makeup pay in addition to the juror payments. Advice I've received confirms that this decision is lawful, according to a clause in my employment contract. Receiving only the juror allowance will make it very difficult to meet my family's financial obligations. Therefore, I request to be discharged from jury service so that I can return to work. I apologise sincerely for letting down the court and my fellow jurors in this instance and am thankful for this opportunity. End quote. The judge noted that Bob had been engaged and attentive for the last four months of the trial, which creeped me out a little. I didn't realise that the judge was keeping such a close eye on the jurors. It makes sense now that I think about it, but it has an unobserved observer vibe. But Justice Payne had noticed that Bob was doing a good job and stated that, that it was of considerable regret that his employer had decided not to pay him anymore. He also noted that this system, which allows employers to stop pay after 10 days, places an intolerable burden on employed citizens who were selected to serve on jury for a criminal trial lasting longer than a few weeks. The 10-day period is intended to ensure that employees who provide jury services should not suffer a financial burden due to their participation in jury service. And yet this case demonstrated that the 10 days was insufficient to be truly effective. After all, at this stage in the trial, they are at day 71. And it was expected to run for at least another two months. The judge determined that if he refused to release Bob from jury service, it would be placing Bob in an intolerable position of being unable to provide properly for his family. There is also the fact that if Bob was forced to serve on the jury against his will, bearing the significant concern for the welfare of his family, this could potentially disrupt the calm deliberation of the jury. The judge therefore released Bob from his jury service, and the trial proceeded with the remaining 12 jurors. There was no suggestion that the remaining 12 jurors would be unable to properly fulfil their role. Quote, I expressed personally to him when doing so my gratitude for his lengthy period of service and acknowledged the dedication and attention to the proceedings which he had displayed. End quote. This judgment gave some insight into the importance of juries. In view of the important role they serve, jury members must not be stressed by other commitments or pressures which might impede upon their ability to perform their functions. 
and that the jury is meant to be representative of the community. However, if employed citizens are released from lengthy trials because of the financial burden, this could result in less representative juries as a result. Or in particular, less representative juries for lengthier trials. Now you may have noticed there that I mentioned that the remaining 12 jurors would continue. So, Bob was not the first jury member dismissed from jury service. The jury panel started with 15 and was reduced to 12. This meant that two other people were also released from service. Let's have a look why. Case 2 The case of the Commonwealth versus Cranston number 14. Two months into the trial, one of the jury members was unable to attend due to illness and was confirmed on the same day as having COVID. We shall call this jury member Cody. The Crown made an application for Cody to be discharged. This may sound extreme. Cody was sick but would be able to return to the jury in a little while. Couldn't they just adjourn? But actually, this trial was plagued with COVID-related delays. The trial was originally meant to commence on the 10th of August 2020. This was vacated on numerous occasions due to COVID and didn't commence for almost two years. It was relisted to commence on the 4th of April 2022, but due to a courtroom being unavailable was moved back to the 26th of April. So it was that the trial with the impaneled jury of 15 members kicked off on the 26th of April 2022. The judge got COVID in June, which caused a delay, obviously. More days were lost when a jury member fell down with COVID, and then a second did, and then Cody was the third. Cody was required to self-isolate for seven days. All of the accused submitted for not discharging Cody. They wanted to try to keep as many members of the jury as possible. But this would result in a further four-day delay for the trial that had already suffered significant delays. The judge quoted Justice Gleeson and Hayden from the matter of Wu versus the Queen 1999. Quote, Delay in a trial can work hardship to an accused as well as to witnesses and to jurors. No doubt some persons accused of crime will gladly put off the day of judgment, but delay in the trial of any accused leaves the accused uncertain of his or her fate. That has long been recognised to be a considerable burden upon the accused. And the courts cannot and must not shut their eyes to the consequences of delays upon others, not only to witnesses and jurors, but also to all others who seek access to the courts, and cannot have their cases tried because of what is happening in cases that are being tried. End quote. Justice Payne noted that the integrity of the trial is risked when there is too much time between hearing the evidence and making a determination of guilt. He therefore decided to discharge Cody to avoid further delay. Case 3. Commonwealth versus Cranston, number 15. In July, on the 48th day of the trial, 
the judge received a note from one of the jurors. Let's call this one Jeff. The note from Jeff said, quote, To his honour, I, juror 02960699, have decided to withdraw from this jury and from the case. My insomnia has been taking a big toll on my physical and mental health, as I'm sure you and everyone else has noticed. My lack of attention when the trial is in session has, in my opinion, impaired my judgment as a juror, as I keep missing details as they are presented. My presence has always been a distraction for the other jurors, as they have to try to keep me awake. I have decided to seek the medical help I need, and it is for that reason that, with heavy heart, I would like to withdraw from this jury. I wish you and everyone else in this court the best. Best of luck with the trial. End quote. It was no surprise to Justice Payne that Jeff was falling asleep during the trial. In fact, he had previously seen Jeff sleeping during the evidence. This was a problem from Jeff from the very beginning of the trial. In the judge's opening statements, he told the jury of the importance of informing him if they are having any difficulty concentrating or staying awake during the evidence, partly directed to Jeff. On day nine of the trial, Jeff had sent the judge a note stating, quote, Many apologies for having trouble keeping awake. I have chronic insomnia which leads to chronic headaches in the morning, meaning I have some trouble staying awake if I don't get enough sleep the night before. I have a bit of a light sensitivity, so I will close my eyes periodically to rest them. Apologies again, I will try my best to stay awake from now on. End quote. The legal representation for the accused persons and the Crown all agreed that it would be best and appropriate for Sleepy Jeff to be discharged. The judge agreed, stating that Jeff's ability to perform the functions of juror were seriously compromised and that he should not continue to act. As I mentioned, there have been 20 associated judgments in relation to the running of the matter, and even on only a brief review of them, I can understand how a juror might find the case so dull as to induce slumber. It is not scintillating reading by any means. While the idea of listening in to hidden surveillance records sounds exciting, it soon loses its appeal when you find out that it was long discussions in a great deal of minute detail about relationships between various corporate entities. This jury panel has definitely been through a lot, and that was not the end of it. On day 111 of the trial, after over six months of proceedings, counsel for Mr Menon applied for the jury to be discharged. Counsel referred to exchanges between himself and the judge, and comments that the judge had said, and even facial expressions of the judge, arguing that his authority had been undermined and that the jury might think that this undermined Mr. Menon's defence. Counsel for Mr. Menon was therefore seeking the jury to be discharged on the basis that Mr. Menon could no longer receive a fair trial. Justice Payne stated, quote, I have certainly not intended to make any facial expressions, nor to shake my head, end quote. He further said that if asked, he would say something to the jury to the effect of, Quote, I am not intending to secretly communicate with them by facial expression, taking my wig, 
or mask off or shaking my head, end quote. Justice Payne rejected the application for the discharge of the jury, stating the actions fairly considered as a whole do not give rise to any legitimate concern that Mr Menon's interest might be prejudiced. He finished, quote, In the course of a very lengthy trial, the jury will understand, as I have repeatedly told them, that they are the sole judges of the facts, and nothing that I say or do indicates that I have any views about the evidence being given, end quote. Juror Jeff was not the only one struggling to stay awake during the evidence. The Crown had given notice that they observed Juror D was having trouble staying awake as well, and applied for that juror to be discharged. The Crown argued that not being awake during the trial would make it difficult for the juror to participate in deliberations, but may also cause discord in the jury room. In contrast to our drowsy Jeff, For this juror, the judge determined that they were not so incapacitated they could not perform their functions. Justice Payne noted that, quote, After nine months of trial, to my observation the juror in question has been attentive to evidence and submissions. If this issue had been raised six months ago, at the time the jury was reduced to 12, I would have regarded a complaint about an apparent inability to concentrate as a significant issue and would likely have caused investigations to be made. In circumstances where, to my observation, the juror has been attentive over many months, and the anonymous note refers to this juror falling asleep during court, given how little court time is remaining, the problem is a remote one. End quote. The judge refused to discharge juror D. Case 4. The Commonwealth versus Cranston, number 23. We have yet another sleepyhead. On the 16th of January, 2023, day 139 of the trial, Justice Payne received a note from an unidentified juror. The note said, quote, I would like to raise my concern about the ability of a juror to fairly judge matters in this trial due to the juror's ongoing inability to remain awake and focused in court. My own direct observations and comments from other jurors indicate that the issue has been ongoing and regular. The juror in question falls asleep most days, multiple times a day, and sometimes multiple times during even the short 40-minute sittings. Though the issue has been raised in the jury room, The juror in question has not been able to successfully address the issue. I am submitting this note without the knowledge of the other jurors due to the tension it has caused. But I am now very anxious and concerned about the possible implications of this issue on the outcome of the trial. End quote. Case 5. The Commonwealth versus Cranston number 26. Just when you thought it was all over, there was one more juror to be dismissed. The judge completed his summing up on the 18th of January 2023, at which point the jury was retired to consider their verdicts. They were still deliberating in late February when there was another application for a juror to be dismissed. Juror K, 
who I'll call Kate, was pregnant and received medical advice to cease participation in jury service due to pregnancy-related illness. Seven months earlier, in August 2022, Kate had informed the court that she was unwell, related to her pregnancy, and had to miss court one day. Since that time, there were a number of urgent medical appointments that resulted in Kate being absent. When she was once again unable to attend in February 2023 due to illness, the judge wrote to Kate's doctor to ask whether, given her state of pregnancy and health, it was likely that she would be able to participate in jury deliberations for the next several weeks. Kate had been advised that she was to go on maternity leave and not attend court or work. Her due date was the 29th of March. Counsel agreed that Kate should be discharged, All parties agreed that the trial should continue with the remaining 11 jurors. Justice Payne noted that it is a permissible number of jurors in Commonwealth prosecutions. The Jury Act permits trials of this length to go forward with as few as eight jurors. In these circumstances, it was determined that there was no risk of miscarriage of justice. Case 6. The Commonwealth versus Cranston, number 27. Even when I thought this was over, I find another case. Judgment number 27, handed down on the 9th of March, 2023. Only a few days after Kate was discharged, the judge was informed that juror N, let's call her Natalie, was hospitalised for abdominal pain. She was admitted and not expected to be released from hospital for five days. Even while this is going on, juror P, for Peter, sent a text message to the court officer seeking to be released. He was starting a new job and had training. This was following up with a letter from the employer which stated that the new job required four consecutive weeks of training before employment could commence. If Peter didn't do the training, he may lose the job. Counsel for Mr Menner argued that Peter's new job was a relatively low-skilled job, and if he wasn't discharged, he could likely find another relatively low-skilled job. Ugh. Felt uncomfortable just saying that. The judge, the voice of reason, concluded that Peter had been made an offer of employment which was conditional upon attending a month-long training commencing on the 7th of March. If Peter did not attend the month-long training, the offer of employment would lapse. On the faith of earlier being told in writing by the judge that the trial would likely conclude by the 31st of January, Peter had resigned from his prior employment and could not go back to that job. If not discharged, Peter would become unemployed. Forcing Peter to continue to participate in deliberations in circumstances where he would become unemployed by reason of these circumstances would likely lead to him being distracted and resentful in relation to further deliberations, and in all the circumstances the judge described, failing to discharge Peter would likely to affect his ability to perform the functions of a juror. Peter was discharged on the 6th of March. The trial continued with the remaining 10 jurors. 
Counsel for Mr Cranson had stated that if one more juror was discharged, they would oppose proceeding with only nine jurors. The other thing that came out of that judgment was that the jury could give verdicts on each count separately, meaning that they didn't have to wait until they decided all counts against all of the accused. They make a finding of one accused's guilt, even while they can continue to deliberate on the others. On the 6th of March, Justice Payne instructed the jury, quote, Because she was considering ten separate counts and five separate accused, it is open to you to deliver a verdict about any particular count against any particular accused at any time. You do not have to wait until you have reached verdicts for all accused on all counts. Of course, whether you are able to do so or wish to do so is a matter entirely for you. End quote. Justice Payne was noting that if jury members continue to drop, it ran the risk that, quote, if the juror had reached verdicts on some counts and not delivered them, in circumstances where other jurors apply to be discharged, that close to an entire year of effort in a multi-accused criminal trial would be wasted, end quote. So in this case where the jury seemed to be plagued with continuous and frequent needs to discharge jury members, it was better to play it safe and welcome sentences separately, verdict separately, than run the risk that they had made a verdict but just hadn't said it yet. And finally, we reached the end of the cases I had discovered. Fingers crossed there weren't any more for this poor jury panel. And that was only a few of the judgments revolving around the case of the Commonwealth versus Cranston. As I said, there were some other procedural ones, but really the purpose of this episode was to have a look at this jury panel um, and how it was overall affecting the, the process of the criminal trial. As I said, I might cover the case of the Commonwealth versus Cranston once it's published. I might if I can stay awake to read it. Thank you for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join me for my next one.